I wonder what answer you would give me this morning if I asked you what sustains you. Now, my suspicion is that more than one of you are going to answer that question with coffee. Coffee is what gets me up in the morning. As you'll say coffee is what keeps me going. Coffee is what helps me keep do the things I need to do. Now, maybe a few of you might be a little bit more philosophical. You might say, you know what, my spouse or my children and their needs and, and taking care of them and the joy of being around them, that, that's what sustains me every day. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what keeps me going. That's what helps me do the things I need to do. And then maybe a handful of you would say, you know what, Pastor, I've just always been this way. I've just been the kind of person, when I get up in the morning, I jump out of bed and, and I have my favorite bowl of cereal or some bacon and eggs and, and I'm just ready to go to work. And, and I just find every day that within me is just this energy to go do the things that I need to do. Now, the reality is, though, that all of those things at one time or another have failed us. For example, all of us have had that morning, if coffee is your thing, all of us have had that morning where perhaps we're running late to work or to school and we just didn't have time to grab that first cup of coffee. And everybody we work with or everybody we go to school with realized it as soon as we got there. Or perhaps maybe you've had one of those days where you got up in the morning, you were really excited, and about five, ten minutes in, your children are acting like spoiled brats, and all of the energy you had for that day is gone. Or perhaps you have a fight with your spouse, or he gets on your nerves, or she doesn't seem to understand what you're trying to say. Or maybe it's just the idea that you get the cold or a flu, or, or maybe it's a difficult emotional season in your life, and that inner drive that is normally there is gone. How many things in our life do we turn to and we think, if only I had this, I'd have more energy. If only I had this, I would have the motivation to go do the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Well, this morning we come to the story of Jehoshaphat. We're going to try and cover uh, all of his life presented to us here in Second Chronicles. So, we're going to cover chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20 this morning. Now, the opening verses of chapter 17 really set the stage for us. We're told that the Lord, in verse 3, is with Jehoshaphat. And we've learned as we've gone through Second Chronicles that, that uh, in order for anybody to be successful in life, that, ha- that phrase had to be there. If they were going to do anything for God, the Lord had to be with them. And we're told that uh, Jehoshaphat, he sought the Lord in the things he did. So he prayed and he, he looked through the Bible to see, make sure that he was doing what God wanted him to do. And then in verse 5, we have a key idea in this. The Lord established the kingdom in Jehoshaphat's hands. The word there is the idea of sustained. As long as Jehoshaphat was, the Lord was with him, and as long as the Lord, or Jehoshaphat was seeking the Lord... The Lord was the one ultimately who was sustaining him. So we get the idea. It was the Lord who got Jehoshaphat up every morning. It was the Lord who helped him do the things he needed to do. And so what I want to talk about this morning is sharing with you what the Lord did in Jehoshaphat's life to sustain him and how he does the same thing for us. So we have three points for you this morning. Number one. Number one, God sustains us by telling 
the truth. The Lord sustains us, or God sustains us, by telling the truth. If we go to chapter 18, verse 18, we have a situation. Let me set the stage for you. We have Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And we have King Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And the offer here is to get into an alliance to go up to, to, uh, to battle. Ramoth Gilead is the idea of going up to battle Syria. Now, we know a lot historically about what was going on at this particular time. Syria was gaining in power, and a number of nation-states had formed alliances like we would have a modern-day NATO to try to keep them consolidated to their area. This is just another one of those attempts. And so we have the ten tribes in the north. We have the two tribes in the south who have been divided for who knows how long now, trying to form an alliance to keep Syria at bay. Now, God has always required his kings, his leaders, to go and consult God before they went into battle. Now, if you remember, a long time ago in our Second Chronicles studies, one of the things we came across was that the northern kingdom had kind of developed their own Yahweh worship, their own, their own religion, if you will. And so the king of Israel, Ahab, he gathers all of his pastors and prophets And he asks them, he's supposed to consult God, and he says, am I supposed to go up and fight with Syria? And all 400 said, go up, go up, go up. God is with you. You're going to win. Now, we don't know how. The king Jehoshaphat was sitting there and realized that these men were not speaking in the spirit of the Lord. And so Jehoshaphat asked Ahab, is there anybody else we can consult? And in comes Micaiah. He is a true prophet of God, and he says to Ahab and Jehoshaphat, if you go and do this, Ahab will die, and the people of the northern kingdom will be scattered. Now, instead of heeding that response, Ahab is going to try everything he can to get around it. He orders Micaiah put in jail, treated poorly. Micaiah is beaten for what he's done. Ahab says he's going to stay in prison until he comes back. And Micaiah responds, if you come back, then I have not spoken the truth by God. Now, in 2 Chronicles, there are several times that God will confront a king with the truth. Sometimes it's an encouragement. Sometimes it's a rebuke. Sometimes it's an affirmation. Sometimes it's a course correction. But at no point does God ever lie. And whether or not God is telling us the truth is not determined by the outcome. If we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we have a number of people God said to do something. He tells them the truth, and some of those people end up blessed. They become kings, and they deliver people, and the the stories we typically talk about in Sunday school. But then Hebrews 11 11 tells us there are some who end up rejected, who end up poor, and end up murdered just like the Lord. But the constant is that God tells the truth. He's not mischievous. He is not deceptive. So we can open his word and we can read it. We can know what we read is true. But why do we struggle with that? Why do we struggle with the idea that God tells the truth? Because we consider for a moment how much we are unlike him. The Bible tells us we're supposed to speak the truth to one another. One of the Ten Commandments is to not bear false witness. 
But truth-telling is a rare commodity, is it not? In this story, we have 400 liars and one person telling the truth. And after 3,000 years, here we are today, that statistic has not changed. It's 400 to 1. And the reason we have, all sorts of reasons we have around our life as to why we don't tell the truth. We're afraid of people. We don't want to tell the truth because we're afraid of what somebody might say. We don't tell the truth because we have political ideas that we want to have played out. We don't tell the truth because we might lose money or we might lose an opportunity to gain money. We don't tell the truth because we have biases and we don't want to confront any of those biases. And so we are going to play games with all sorts of words to affirm those biases. The reality is we see it all around us today, right? With government programs and the interpretation of the law, with mass mandates, we have leaders who do not tell the truth. But it's not just a problem in Washington. It's not just a problem at the CDC. The problem sits in this room this morning. And because we do not tell the truth and we struggle with telling the truth, we struggle with believing that God is a God who tells the truth. And so when we open his word and we see that he tells us that sin will bring judgment. And then he tells us that he loved us in this way by sending his son. And then he tells us how to be the the best spouse or how to be the right kind of widow or a pastor or even somebody who's single and ready to mingle. The Lord tells us the truth. And we turn to the Gospels and we see, it, we see our Lord Jesus always telling the truth with gentleness and humility. And he does so because God sustains us by telling the truth. Number two this morning, God sustains us with his sovereignty. God sustains us with his sovereignty. If you go down to verses 28 through 34. So now we have this alliance between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Back in chapter 17, again, we're told that Jehoshaphat had been sustained by God, and now he's wealthy, and he's militarily powerful, and he's done several things that have benefited the people under his rule. At the beginning of chapter 18, we have this alliance being formed, and this is really significant. As I mentioned earlier, these two countries have been divided. They've been at odds. The ten tribes of the north, the two tribes of the south, the people of God, have not gotten along since after the death of Solomon. So for the first time, there's a chance for unity. And in that unity comes all sorts of promises of prosperity and security that have not been there since King Solomon. Now I want to ask you a question real quick. Consider for a moment how many times in your life you have heard the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. By every outward appearance, Jehoshaphat is doing something that's better for everybody. By trying to bring these two parts of the nation back together. To face off against an enemy that lives outside of the promised land. If you were Jehoshaphat and you had that opportunity in front of you, would you take it? Because by all common wisdom, we would say being united is better than being divided. And so that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. We also know King Ahab was a wicked, wicked man. We, say that we see a prophet of God saying that this is not going to turn out well. 
And yet this alliance, this unity is formed to go fight against Syria. Now, I don't understand how this happens. Maybe Jehoshaphat was gullible, or maybe there's a cultural idea I don't know about. But somehow Ahab, to get around what Micaiah has said, he says to, to Jehoshaphat, he says, why don't you wear your clothes and make you look like a king when we go into battle? So that everybody there can look at you and say, oh, there's a king. Now, if you're on the battlefield and you're wearing kingly robes, what are you? A target. And Ahab says to uh, Jehoshaphat, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to dress like a normal soldier and I'm going to hide. Ahab is told that if he goes, he's going to die. And so now Ahab is doing everything he can to preserve his life. But what happens? If you go to verse 33, it says that a certain man drew his bow and at random it struck the king, it struck King Ahab. So what the Bible is saying here is that some no-name guy that we will never know the name of hits a 10,000 to 1 shot. And as a result, verse 34 tells us Ahab dies. And Jehoshaphat, at the beginning of the next chapter, returns home. And what the author of 2 Chronicles is trying to tell us is here is that God is in charge. Ahab was able to get Jehoshaphat on his side with a great feast. He was able to convince Jehoshaphat to wear his robes into battle. Ahab did everything he could to battle and to stay alive, but he didn't. If they had 24-hour news programs at the time, every talking head and every headline would have been behind what they were doing. But God was in charge. And it was a call to submit to his sovereignty. Let me ask you this question. Can any of you look back at your life and say to yourself this morning, if things had gone the way I wanted them to, it would have been a disaster? Think about that. Or how many of us this morning can look back at our lives and look back at a sinful choice and recognize today the consequences could have been much worse? Maybe this morning, though, on the opposite side, you have a story and you say, you know what, I can see how God provided that money or provided that job at the right time. Or whatever it is that God did, you can look and you can say, you know what, God sustained me. And submitting to that sovereignty is very simple. First of all, it means that we, when God says don't do something, we don't do it. God tells us because of his sovereignty to put away worry about the future. Now look at this. All of the things that are happening here are a result of a fear of the growing power of Syria. This was the excuse for the alliance. This was the excuse to join forces with the wicked king. This was the excuse to ignore Micaiah. Because there was this threat or this issue or this problem that was causing them and motivating them to do things that God did not want them to do. And whether it's gas prices or Russia's invasion of the Ukraine or, or, or terrible decisions by legislation or presidents or governors, all of those excuses will always be there. You will, it, no generation has ever lived with a legitimate excuse to not submit to the sovereignty of God. But the hardest time to do that I know is when things are far more personal. It's not presidents and gas prices and CDC. 
It's when we're experiencing the pain and loss. Perhaps it's physical pain. And we have a hard time submitting to God's sovereignty and allowing that pain to draw us closer to Christ. Or perhaps it is a, a loss, an emotional loss. And we forget that Jesus, in, the, in submission to the sovereignty of God, was abandoned by his closest friends and became the object of the wrath of the Father. Submitting does not mean we do not feel pain. It does not mean we do not grieve. It means we face these things with hope. Because God is sovereign. And then number three. God sustains us with his grace. God sustains us with his grace. We come now to verses 35 to 37 in chapter 20. It's a really interesting story to close the account. We're told once again that Jehoshaphat, not learning his lesson the first time, tries to make a, an alliance with the northern kingdom, with, uh, with the king there, who is also wicked like his father. Now, just before this passage, there was a conflict between Jehoshaphat and some other allied nations. In that story, we, we see that Jehoshaphat's army is significantly outnumbered, and the king prays for deliverance, and the enemy is defeated. The result, though, is not just in a tremendous amount of spoils, is that Jehoshaphat now gains control of a harbor that they had not controlled since Solomon. So the building of the ships here to re-engage a popular trade route. The idea here is you and me get together, we're going to pool our money, we're going to make some boats, and we're going to send them out to re-establish this trade route that has not been functioning now for a couple of hundred years. It's a great proposal. It really does think of going back to the glory days of Solomon's kingdom. Now, the last time, though, Jehoshaphat did this, it ended in disaster. Remember, Ahab is killed, and he returns home, and the northern kingdom is scattered. That security of having a northern neighbor on your side was gone. So Jehoshaphat tries again. But God comes along with one of his prophets and says, Nope, this will not please me either. And God says, I'm going to destroy these ships. And according to the last verse of the chapter, that's exactly what God does. Now, I want you to notice here, there are two ideas being pressed upon us at the same time. What Jehoshaphat does is something God says is wrong. It was wrong when he did it with Ahab. It's wrong when he does it with Ahab's son. But at the same time, we are told that God is with Jehoshaphat. That's the definition of grace. So let me come back to the question, what would your life be like if God required you to face the full consequences of every wrong decision? Where would you be today? That every time that you sinned, every time you failed... Where would you be today if God made you face the full consequence of every single one of those things? The Bible tells us the world outside of us makes that assumption. The world outside of us thinks to themselves, well, I've never had to pay the full price for my wrong decisions. I've never, never had been struck by lightning for the terrible things that I have done. And so they come to the conclusion that God must be either absent or he must be indifferent. 
And sometimes we think the same thing as we think, you know what? I did something wrong. The consequences weren't all that bad. Now I shouldn't have done it, but whatever. And we begin to wonder, is God absent or maybe he's indifferent? But the Bible tells us that God is long-suffering, patient, full of grace. I stand before you this morning as somebody who has a wonderful wife and four beautiful children who enjoys his life, enjoys his ministry. I guarantee you I have not faced the full consequence of every wrong decision I've made. In this text this morning, we have somebody who repeats the same mistake, yet God continues to be with him. This is what the book of Romans means when it says that God's grace can outrun our sin. That every time we sin, his grace goes further. It is by his grace we are not destroyed the moment that we make our sinful decision. In the book of Acts, the Bible tells us that God has shown this kind of grace, this generally to the world. The tribes who have never heard the name of God and never thought about the God of the Bible have been on the receiving end of his grace. They've been receiving, on the receiving end of having their crops grow and having victories in battle and having their children raised to adulthood. God has shown them that grace. There's an old term for it, the idea of common grace. But the Bible also tells us about a different kind of grace. The grace we see in the person of Jesus Christ, that he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. This grace is not so that we, our crops will grow. It is a grace that saves us from the wrath of God on our day of judgment. It is a grace that can conquer our resistance to becoming like you, Jesus. It is a grace that sustains us and will sustain us all the way to our seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I come back to the beginning of the message. What sustains you? And the answer is not your first or your tenth cup of coffee today. It is not your spouse or your children. It is not in the significance of who you are or what you do. It will not be in the energy that you wake up with every morning. It is the Lord that sustains you. He sustains us by telling us the truth. He tells us how to thrive, how to have peace, how to know him. He sustains us by his sovereignty, by being in charge. Not only does he intervene in our lives... But he comforts us when we can't make sense of our lives. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, he sustains us by his grace. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you live and breathe and work because of his common grace for you. But if you are a Christian today, that means today and tomorrow and eternity is filled with the grace that you can have by faith in his son Jesus and it will take you all the way home let's pray father we thank you for the truth and we find in jehoshaphat's life we thank you for the reality that you are the one that sustains us and i just pray you father that you continue to help us to seek out your sustaining grace to live by your sustaining sovereignty and father to understand that you sustain us by telling us the truth and we pray this in jesus name amen all right, we should find our...